0: You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast. This episode presented by mission partner Josh Bartlett from Wycliffe, Australia. G'day. As Andy said, my name's Josh and I'm one of St. John's mission partners. And last time I had the chance to preach at St. John's, uh, I preached online. it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, It was right near the start of one of Melbourne's lockdowns, uh, and so I had to to jump in and preach online. Uh, Now I'm preaching to you guys online. And it makes me think, uh, just how many things have changed over the last four years? I mean, four years ago, if I'd walked into my supermarket and seen someone wearing a face mask, I would have assumed that Maybe they came from a part of the world where uh, the air quality wasn't as good, and so they were used to wearing a face mask back home. Uh, These days, I would not bat an eyelid if I saw someone wearing a face mask in the supermarket. Or uh, four years ago, if I'd said Zoom to you, you might have thought of the sound that a two-year-old makes when playing with racing cars. Uh, Whereas I'm pretty sure if I say Zoom today, that's not what you're thinking of. And if someone had predicted to me four years ago that uh, in the not-too-distant future there'd be a long, drawn-out war in Europe, I probably would have said, well, maybe not. I don't think there's there's really an appetite for that sort of violence in Europe at the moment. And yet, uh, yet here we are with countries around the world, including Australia, doing record spending on defence because, largely, of this war in, in Ukraine. And at times of great change like this, it's natural to ask amongst all of these things that are changing, what stayed the same? Where's the solid ground that I can stand? And for us as followers of Jesus, it's natural for us to ask, well, who are we as the people of God amongst all of the changes? What should stay the same about us? Well, today's Bible reading is from Nehemiah chapter eight. And in this Bible reading, the people of God, the ancient Israelites, have experienced a time of great change. And they're asking these questions of, who are we as the people of God? So in a minute, I'm going to read the Bible passage to you. Uh, But before I do, I want to just give you a quick recap of the history of God's people up to this point. So around about one to one and a half thousand years before today's passage, God spoke to a guy named Abraham. And God said, Abraham, I want you to leave the country that you've known. I want you to follow me to a new land. And here's what I'm going to promise you. I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. I'm going to give you a special land of your own. And I'm going to bless people who bless you, curse people who curse you. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Well, uh, fast forward and um, hundreds of years and God kept his promise to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, the Israelites. Uh, They were enslaved in Egypt for a while, but God rescued them. And God led them into a land that he gave them, the land that he would promised. So he kept that part of the promise, giving them a land. And at first they were ruled by judges, but then ruled by kings. And and there was the great King David. And now imagine that you were an Israelite living in that period, the period of King David. Uh, You would have heard these stories of Abraham and God's promises to Abraham. And you'd probably think, oh. Look, God's made us into a great nation. God's given us the land he promised. And God also promised to bless the world through us. And, and maybe King David's gonna do that. Maybe that's the, uh, the means by which God's gonna bless the whole world. Uh, but God said, no, that's not what's gonna happen. And God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan and said, David, actually one of your descendants is gonna be the one the, the promised king that I'm gonna send. He's gonna rescue the whole world. And his kingdom is never going to end. How's that for a promise? One of your descendants is going to be the king forever. Uh, well, well, this this seemed great. And, and David was su- succeeded by his son Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, Israel enjoyed a period of great prosperity, a golden age. But after that, things just went downhill. Uh, the kingdom of Israel split in half. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. and. Uh, In the south, a few of the kings followed God. Most of them didn't. In the north, basically none of the kings followed God. The Israelites turned away from God. And time and time again, God said through prophets, he said, you need to turn back to me. You need to turn back to me. And finally, when the Israelites didn't turn back to God, uh, or if they did, it was very brief. And then they turned away from God and ignored him and disobeyed him again. Finally, God said, look, because you have turned away from me, I'm going to let your enemies conquer you and take you out of the land that I gave you. And that's what happened. First, the Babylonians came and invaded the northern kingdom. And then the, uh, sorry, first the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians came and invaded the southern kingdom. Uh, They ransacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and the walls of the city. And they carried the people away back to all over the Babylonian Empire. Now. Imagine that you are an Israelite, one of God's people at this period in Israel's history. Your parents and grandparents have told you the stories of the uh, of the promises that God made Abraham, and you are maybe maybe you grew up in Babylon. And you're looking around thinking, "Well, God promised to make us a great nation, but we're not any sort of nation now. We're just scattered. And God promised to God promised to give us a land, but We can't even live in our own land now. And how could God possibly raise up one of King David's descendants now to be the king forever? When the Babylonians have put an end to the dynasty of King David, we're no longer ruled by kings. But then one day you hear that the king of Babylon has allowed some of your your fellow Jews to travel back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding. And you think to yourself, hmm, Maybe I'd like to see the land that my parents and grandparents have told me about this promised land that God gave us. So when the next group of, of Jews return to Jerusalem, you go with them. And the place is a mess. You know, Jerusalem's walls are in ruins. The temple is in ruins. The houses are in ruins. It's just a complete mess. But you and your fellow Jews start rebuilding, You start uh, rebuilding the wall to defend yourself, start rebuilding the temple. Um, But then uh, the new king comes to power in in Babylon and people who are opposing you rebuilding send word to the king. And they say, you're just uh, rebuilding because you want to rebel. And the king of Babylon says, stop building. And then a new king comes to power and he searches his records and finds that one of his predecessors said that you could build. So he says, okay, you can continue. And after many, many years and lots of hard work, finally, the work's done. Finally, you've built the walls of the city. You've rebuilt the temple. Sure, it's not as grand as the temple that Solomon built, but it's something. Um, And sure, you're not really your own nation. You're still subservient to Babylon, but but at least you get to live in in the land that God promised. And it's at this point in Israel's history that we come to the passage that we're reading today, Nehemiah 8. So I'm going to read the passage now, uh, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at what we can learn from this passage. So here we are. Nehemiah 8, starting at the very start. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So, on the 8th of October, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masaiah. To his left stood Pideiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to his feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Barney, Sherabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Marseiah, Keletah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan and Peleiah, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on a day such as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks, and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected or sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people, telling them, Hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. On the 9th of October, the family leaders of all the people, together with the priests and Levites, met with Ezra, the scribe, to go over the law in greater detail. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills to get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed by the law. So. The people went out and they cut branches and used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses, in their courtyards, in the courtyards of, the, of God's temple, or, or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each of the seven days of the festival and then on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly as was required by law. On the 31st of October the people assembled again and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the the Lord their God was read aloud to them. And then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. And I'll, I'll stop there, but the story does continue, continue to go on. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll dig into what this passage has to say to us today. Let me pray. Our great Heavenly Father, as we come to your living word today, we pray that you would speak afresh to us, Amen. Well, uh, in this passage, the Israelites, God's people, had been facing a time of great change. They'd been exiled from their land and finally they were allowed to return to their land. But it wasn't quite the same. And amongst all of the change, they were asking themselves this question of who are we? And the first thing I think we notice as we look at this passage is that what we've read about this reading of the law to the people. This was a big event. And when I say a big event, I don't just mean in terms of size. I mean, it was a big event in terms of size. They built a special huge platform, a stage for the uh, occasion. All the people in the community were invited, even even the kids who were old enough to understand. Uh, They were all crammed into the square from from morning until noon. Uh, So it was a big event in terms of size, but it was a very significant event. Um, And it was a significant event because the people were faced with this this question of who are we? Um, And the answer was, we are God's people and therefore we're people of God's book. Uh, You know, it's easy to um, look at a passage like this and think, well, why did they include all these weird names in here? I mean, uh, you know, uh, verse four and verse seven, all of these names of people that we don't really care. Did they just put it in to make it boring? Uh, Or maybe to uh, to trip up a Bible reader who maybe wasn't as prepared as they should have been so that the congregation can see that they weren't prepared. Is that why the names were there? Uh, Well, I don't think it's either of those things. I think that the fact that all of these names are recorded actually show that this is a really big event in the life of God's people. Imagine, uh, Imagine that there was a really significant event for this community of believers here at St John's Diamond Creek. Um, maybe a few years ago there was the 150th celebration uh, of of the church, and maybe if that was a significant event for you, maybe you can still remember the celebration service. I can imagine someone saying, uh, saying, you know, I was there at that event. And up there on the stage was was the minister. Um, there was there was Pastor Tim there, and to his right was the uh, local federal MP, uh, and to his left was our uh, deacon at the time, and and your aunt, your Aunt Anna, she got up on the stage too and she did the Bible reading. I think it's a bit like this with the names here. I can imagine someone years after this event in the passage saying, and and your grandfather Meshulam, he was right up there with Ezra on on his right. This was a big event in the lives of the people and the names are here helping people remember and also uh, for God's people at the time, reminding them that we're a part of this. Now, um, for Israelites who'd grown up in the Babylonian Empire, probably most of them grew up not speaking the Hebrew language, uh, the language of the ancient Israelites. Probably most of them grew up as their first language speaking, uh, maybe Aramaic, the language of the Babylonians, or some other languages, depending on where in the empire they were. And so coming back together and reading God's law in Hebrew, it says in the passage that the Levites interpreted for the people. and, And I think... Uh, I think it's clear in the passage that that includes a bit of explaining, maybe giving many sermons of what's going on, but it almost certainly also means actually interpreting into a language that they could understand, because this was such a significant event that they needed to make sure that all of the people could hear what was going on and could understand it. Now, today, we're God's people, and, and as we saw before, we've been going through all sorts of big changes in the world. Uh, and like the ancient Israelites, If you're a follower of Jesus and so you can say, yes, we're God's people, then we should be saying we're God's people and therefore we're people of God's book. We rely on God's book to connect with God, to listen to God and for God to transform us. Uh, And yet, many of us struggle to actually read the Bible the way that we'd like to. About 10 years ago, uh, Bible Society Australia did some research, Took some statistics and they said that only two in ten Christians in Australia have any kind of Bible reading habit. Now, my role with Wycliffe uh, is in Bible engagement, helping people overcome obstacles into Bible reading. And so, about six or seven years ago, I actually did a survey here at St. John's. uh, And at that time, uh, the figure was a bit better than two in ten. About uh, 40 to 45% of the people who were attending St. John's at that time had read the Bible for themselves. more than half of the days in the past week, and I'd say, based on my experience in churches, probably for people who are regularly attending church, that's a that's a pretty typical figure. Maybe forty to fifty percent of people having a habit of of regular Bible use. Now you might say, well, that's better than two and ten, which is great, and that's true. Uh, but I don't think any of us would say, oh well, four or five out of ten is good enough, because if we believe that. The Bible is the main way that God speaks to us today. If we believe that God transforms lives through the Bible, then we need to be getting into the Bible as much as we possibly can. Uh, And, you know, in my work with Wycliffe, I've found a number of obstacles that people in our Western uh, Christian churches face when getting into the Bible. Uh, One obstacle, one cultural obstacle, and this is one that we're all aware of, is the obstacle of busyness. Uh, If you said to me, look, I'm not reading the Bible as much as as I like, and I asked, well, what's stopping you? The number one answer that you would say would be some variation on this theme of busyness. And, you know, from what I've seen, I actually think that we live in a culture that idolises busyness. We treat busy people as the most important people. And this goes to such an extent that if I have a day where where I don't have anything that I really have to do, our culture kind of tells me to feel guilty about that because I'm not doing something productive. And I think this has seeped into the way that we view spirituality and the way that we view the Bible. um, uh, To the point that we don't think of the Bible, of of reading the Bible and spending time slowing down and listening to God as, as productive work. And so that gets in the way of reading the Bible. Another cultural obstacle, another cultural value, which causes an obstacle to Bible reading uh, is this value of uh, individualism and and essentially selfishness in our Western culture. You can't watch TV, scroll the Internet, drive through the town, drive through the city without being bombarded with ads telling you, you should buy this. You should go here. You're worth it. You should treat yourself to this. And I think that this uh, individualism has crept into the church. Um, and the way that we view spiritualities to the point that we set unrealistic goals for our Bible use. And then when we fail to live up to them, we think, well, I'm the only one responsible for my spirituality. So no one, no one would really care to hear about my failures to read the Bible. Uh, And even if they did care, it's none of their business. And so as a result, we shoulder this burden alone, needlessly, because the reality is so many people here, struggling with the same challenges and we'd be so much better together than we are alone. Well, we have these obstacles to getting into the Bible. Let's have a look at what we can learn from the way that the ancient Israelites engaged with God's book, with the Bible, what that can say to us today. So the first thing that we see in the way that these uh, ancient Israelites engaged with God's word in this passage is that they engaged with conviction. Uh, here's what didn't happen in verse one of the passage. When the Israelites had settled in their towns, uh, all the people, uh, Ezra the scribe said to all the people, you guys get a better come together here for a, a solemn meeting uh, and you better listen to God's word because you're supposed to be God's people. And if you don't listen to the Bible, then you're not a good follower of God. Well, that's not what we see, is it? In verse one, we see all the people assembled with a unified purpose And then they asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law. The people had this conviction that they needed to get into God's book more. So much so that they built this special stage for the occasion. Uh, They summoned the whole community. They set a date, summoned the community. uh, Everyone who was old enough to understand. Um, The people had conviction. And uh, so much so that as they were listening to God's word being read from early morning to to the middle of the day. Can you imagine if... um, uh, if the St John sermons went from early morning to the middle of the day, you know, no matter how good Pastor Tim is at preaching, uh, probably most of us would switch off by the end of it. Yet these people had such conviction that they had to hear these words, that they were they were there listening. And more than that, they were being affected by it. They were weeping because of what they read and what they heard. Well. Um, This conviction, I think, actually can serve as a bit of an antidote to the busyness that we face in life. Because the reality is that as busy as we are, we can't really say, I don't have time to read the Bible, because all of us have exactly the same number of seconds in a day. It, It always has to come down to priorities. And if we have a spiritual hunger, a conviction that we need God's Word, then we're much more likely to prioritise getting into the Bible. Now, that's all well and good, and there are things that, that you can do to kind of uh, try and have a conviction, uh, try and be hungry for the Bible. But ultimately, I think that you can't really manufacture a spiritual hunger. And so I would encourage you, uh, especially if you're finding that busyness is getting the way in the way of you reading the Bible, I'd encourage you to ask for God's help. Ask that the Holy Spirit would give you this conviction and this spiritual hunger, that you'd want to read the Bible because you'd want to be hearing from God every day. So the Israelites engaged with God's word with conviction, uh, but we also see that the Israelites engaged with God's word in community. Uh, it wasn't just the, the scribes, the Levites, the, the people who were Israel's teachers who got together and said, Ezra, you better explain God's word to us more. Um, And it wasn't even just the the men in the community who got together, which would have culturally have been, uh, you know, perfectly normal for an ancient Middle Eastern society like that. Uh, No, it was the whole community, even the kids, who were invited to come and hear God's word. They were engaging with the Bible together in community, and so much so that uh, in verse 13, we see that the family leaders came back together and wanted more. I like to imagine that in between verses 12 and 13, uh, all of the families have gone home after that first day of reading the law uh, and they're sitting around. And one of the kids says, says, Dad, I didn't quite understand it when Ezra said this bit. And the dad's thinking, oh, well, that's the first time I've heard it. I didn't understand it. Well, I'm supposed to be a family leader here. How am I going to lead my family if I don't understand God's word more? and so we see in verse 13, the family leaders came to Ezra and said, we need to understand this more. And so they looked through it in greater detail. and That's when they found out about uh, the festival and they all went and celebrated that festival. You know, engaging with the Bible in community like this uh, has a number of benefits. For a start, it can protect against false teachings. Uh, if you are sitting down and reading the Bible on your own, it's easy to think, oh, maybe it means this or or, uh, or maybe I wish it. I wish it means this, so I'll just pretend it does. But if we're regularly engaging with the Bible with others in our community and faith, whether, it, whether that's um, maybe in our own household, if you have uh, fellow believers in your household, or maybe it's in the larger community of faith, if we're regularly engaging with the Bible, then we can learn from each other. You know, someone else in the church might say, oh, I'm not sure it means that because have you considered what God says in this other part of the Bible? But another advantage of reading the Bible in community is that it can inspire and encourage us and this can help with the uh, with the spiritual hunger that we were talking about before, Uh, because I believe God speaks through the Bible today, but what God wants to say to a, a young man who's unmarried might be very different, even though it's the same Bible passage from what God wants to say to an older widowed woman, for example. And yet when we engage with the Bible together in community, we can see all different angles on the same Bible passage. We can hear God speak to different people, and that can encourage us and inspire us and help foster that spiritual hunger. Uh, But as well as this, reading in community can be a bit of an antidote to this um, idolising self that our culture gives us. So, how about you? Who can you read the Bible with in community? Uh, Now, if you're watching this and you're a regular attender at St. John's, maybe you're you're watching online today because you're sick, uh, then there might be some obvious people uh, that you see at St. John's that you might be able to connect with. Um, Maybe you're you're watching this and you've just stumbled across it uh, and you don't have much other connection with St. John's. But if you'd like to be more connected with St. John's, uh, you should definitely head to the website and connect more so that you can be reading the Bible in community. But for all of us, uh, if you're living with other Christians, maybe think about saying, hey, you know, we're all Christians. We all think the Bible is important. How about every night over dinner, we just spend 10 minutes reading a short passage and and talking about it. Or if you live in a household that um, doesn't eat dinner at all the same time, maybe you'd like to say, well, how about every Thursday night? We just uh, set aside the time for anyone who's home that night. We read a longer passage and spend an hour You know, chatting about it, praying about it, thinking what God's saying to us. There are lots of ways we can engage with the Bible in in our household as a smaller community. And there might be ways that you can engage with the Bible with others in the wider community. And you read the Bible with someone one-on-one. Maybe you can think of someone at St. John's uh, who's from a different generation from you. Maybe you could invite them to catch up regularly and read the Bible together and see what you can learn from hearing someone else's perspectives on the Bible passages. Well, we've seen that the Israelites engaged with the Bible with conviction, and they engaged with the Bible in community. Uh, And I think there's one more attitude here that the Israelites had that's worth focusing on. And that's an attitude of humility and uh, by extension, an attitude of repentance. Uh, Because we see at the start of chapter nine, verses one to three of chapter nine, that after the festival, when they'd all been living in shelters, the Israelites came back again Uh, Read the Bible for another three hours and then spent three more hours repenting of their sins to God. These people weren't just listening to the Bible and reading the Bible and thinking, "Oh, those are nice stories. They were allowing God to convict them and to say, hey, there are things that you need to come to God and say sorry for. And if we seriously believe that God uses the Bible to transform us, we need to be prepared that there'll be parts of our lives that as we read the Bible, God will say through his Holy Spirit you're not doing that quite the way that I'd like you to. That needs to change. We need to approach the Bible with humility and with an attitude of repentance, being prepared to come to God and saying, I'm sorry, I realise now that I haven't been living my life exactly the way that you've asked me to. And this attitude of humility is is another bit of an antidote to this um, cultural uh, selfishness. Uh, if you like, but even more than the Israelites at the time of this passage, when we come to God and we repent, that's we say to God, look, I'm sorry that I've done that. I need to turn back to you. Um, We can be confident that God will forgive us because unlike the Israelites at this point in their history, we know that Jesus came as the king who fulfilled God's promise to King David, the king who would reign forever. And that because of what Jesus did when he lived and when he died, we can actually be forgiven. We can come back to God and have our relationship with God restored. Uh, now, if you have just stumbled across this, um, this online service, uh, or, or if maybe you've been tuned in for a few weeks, but you're not too sure um, about what Christians are on about, I'd say this, this is the number one thing that I would like you to take, take away from this service today is that because of Jesus, we can be forgiven. And if you want to know more about that, head to the St. John's website. Um, Make sure you connect with us at St. John's um, so that you can find out more about what that can mean for your life. But we can be confident that when we come to Jesus, when we come to God and ask for forgiveness, he will give it because of what Jesus has done. So we see that the Israelites engage with the Bible with um, conviction, they engage in community, and they engage with an attitude of humility and repentance. Now, you might not be aware, uh, but the book of Nehemiah in the Bible is actually part four of a a kind of four volume set. Um, The books of first and second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah are all kind of designed to go together to remind God's people who they are, remind the Israelites, this is where you came from. Uh, And often the way that we're tempted to read the Bible is in tiny chunks, read two verses, uh, take it as an inspiration for today. But when you do that, you actually miss out on some of this big picture on seeing how whole books of the Bible fit together. And you know, sometimes for for Christians in the West like us, um, the Bible can feel a bit like a reference book. We kind of would never say that, but we think of it as something that goes on the shelf and I might look it up when I need it, but that's about it. Uh, And I think that sometimes the Format of our Bibles the way that when you open the Bible it has Numbers you know big numbers and little numbers and footnotes and everything like that can encourage us to think of the Bible as a reference book But When we can take a step back and look at the big picture of the Bible uh, That can help us to actually get a picture for God's plans uh, For what he wants to say through the whole of the Bible And so if you're struggling to read the Bible uh, As well as the things I've already said about uh, reading in community, expecting to confess and, and praying for spiritual hunger. Uh, I'd really encourage you to have a look at other, other ways that Bibles can be formatted. So uh, there's something called a uh, Reader's Bible. The one that I really like is uh, is called Immerse. Messiah is the name of the New Testament volume there. Uh, you can pick that up uh, online at, at Word Bookstore or through Kurong. Uh, and... You can see that the pages aren't in narrow columns with tiny text and and footnotes. Um, It looks like a normal book. Uh, And by not having those interruptions, it actually encourages you to read some of the big picture. And I didn't realise what difference it would make not having the chapter numbers until I started reading like that. Uh, And it made me want to read more. Uh, So I'd encourage you to get the big picture rather than reading a few verses and thinking I'm lost. Read big. And try and find a format that encourages you to do that. Now, um, amongst all of this, seeing the ways that God's people engage with the Bible in today's passage, uh, it could be easy to think, well, that's all well and good for back then. Uh, obviously, the Bible was really significant for the Israelites way back then, before the time of Jesus. But what difference does the Bible make today? Uh, but I believe that today the Bible does God does use the Bible to speak to us and to transform our lives. And so I'd like to finish today uh, with a story from some of my Wycliffe colleagues. Uh, See, Wycliffe translates the Bible, especially into languages that don't have it yet. Uh, And back in 1958, an Australian couple, Des and Jenny Otridge, travelled to Papua New Guinea to a small people group there called the Binamarian people. When they arrived there, there was a huge atmosphere of, fear and mistrust among the people. It was a very small people group, only about 110 people there at the time. Uh, Less than 12 of them were kids. The people were at war with lots of neighbouring tribes. Uh, And there was such an attitude of fear and mistrust that many of the women in the Binamarian tribe uh, took great measures to not have children because they thought, well, what's the point of bringing forth a baby into such a a situation is this, we're dying out as a people, there's no hope. Well, Des and Jenny worked on translating the New Testament into the Binnemarian language and they worked away at that for many years until they finally published a New Testament. And after that, Des and Jenny left the Binnemarian people. But some of the Binnemarian people said, well, well, we better keep going with this. So so with some support from Wycliffe and other organisations, they continued to translate parts of the Old Testament. And then a bit later, they went back and revised the New Testament because uh, no Bible translation is perfect, especially not the first translation into a language. And in June 2018, the Binnemarian people published a uh, revised New Testament and had a, a dedication ceremony for that. And Des and Jenny's kids, uh, who are now in their 40s and 50s, but who grew up in the Binnemarian village as kids, traveled from, from Texas and New Zealand and from Brisbane to uh, the Binamarian village for this dedication celebration. And they said that the difference from when they were kids was enormous. For a start, where there had been fear and mistrust, there was now friendliness and openness. But as well as that, where there had been only 110 people here, now there were more than a thousand people. Uh, where there had been only 12 kids, now there were over 700 kids in the Binamarian village. At the dedication, the elders got up and they said, we remember, we remember when our people were facing extinction, there was no hope. We knew that we were dying out. And then you came and you brought the book and the God of the book has made this difference. Even today, God uses the Bible to transform our lives. And to transform whole communities. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your book and that you do speak to us today through your book. We pray that as we uh, try to read the Bible more, as we try to overcome some of these obstacles, we pray that you would help us, uh, you would help give us a spiritual hunger for the Bible so that we prioritize it. We pray that you would help us to find ways that we can read the Bible in community and encourage one another in our struggles. And we pray that you would help us be humble. Help us read the Bible expecting to notice ways that you want us to change. We thank you that because of King Jesus, we can say sorry to you and you will forgive us. Please use the Bible to speak to us and to transform our lives and our communities through us. I pray this in Jesus' name.